You know, the hardest thing about making a podcast is choosing the theme music. <clears throat> Plus, this is a podcast that's going to be heard by a bunch of the most cynical people in the world, advertising creatives. So whatever music I choose, you're all going to judge me. Whether I choose... Hey, and welcome to Don't Judge Me. Oh, no, no, that's too happy. Or... Hi. Welcome to Don't Judge Me. No, no, that's way too sad. Or, hey guys, welcome to Don't Judge... Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, or or do I just go with a 90s hip-hop track because I like 90s hip-hop? Fuck it. Hi, I'm Ralph Van Dyke from Eardrum, and this is Don't Judge Me a podcast where we get up close and personal with the world's biggest names in advertising. Many of these people I know well from years of sitting on juries and falling off bar stools. This first episode is kind of a teaser, where you'll hear snippets of all the conversations I've recorded. If this goes well and you guys like it, I'll release subsequent podcasts focusing on one legend at a time. You'll discover what makes them tick, what they love, what they hate about their job, their most embarrassing piece of work, and then some cheeky questions like, how much do they earn? And when the hell are they going to retire and make room for one of you guys? Not only will you be able to judge them, you'll hear how they judge, which is really useful for anyone wanting to pick up metal at any show. Not that awards are important, but yeah, they are. In fact, part of the reason we're doing this is to show our support for the London International Awards, which is celebrating its 10th year of judging in Vegas. Later you'll hear exactly why Leah is a must-enter for any agency, and it's also kind of fitting that this episode features 10 current or former Leah judges. So let's meet them. I'm Susan Cradle. My title is Global Chief Creative Officer of FCB. My name is uh, Jeremy Cragen, and I'm the Global Chief Creative Officer of Inotion Worldwide. My name is Laura Gregory. I am the CEO and founder of Great Guns. I'm Malcolm Poynton, Global Chief Creative Officer at Chale Worldwide. My name is Matt Eastwood. I am the former Global Chief Creative Officer of J. Walter Thompson. My name is uh, Matt McDonald. I'm a group executive. Executive Creative Director at BBDO. I'm Rob Riley. I'm the Global Creative Chairman of McCann World Group. I'm Rosie Jacob, and I am the co-founder of the nomadic creative consultancy, Genius Seals. My name is Sonal Dabral, and I'm the Vice Chairman and Group Chief Creative Officer of Ogilvy India. And I'm a Chief Creative Officer who has decided to remain anonymous. Stand by for some truth bombs from that person. Now, the first question I ask them is... What does a typical day look like for one of these global superstars? Starting with Susan Cradle, global CCO at FCB. There's no typical day. Like this morning, I was up talking to China. Other days, I end up, you know, starting at 10 in the morning and going till 10 at night. Half the time, I'm on a plane. Sometimes I'm in meetings. It's, it's, there's not one, cons- one consistent day. Every morning, I wake up and go, what time am I supposed to start? <laughs> so... Oh, imagine every hour of every day, somewhere in the world, someone is trying to fire us. So that's what my day is like. I go to where the problems are. So, you know, listen, it's, there's about 25,000 people in the Can World Group. And, uh, half of the job is HR, you know. I'm always looking for talent mm. and placing talent and, and, and nurturing or talking talent off ledges. My typical day looks like 24 hours and every one of them has something going on in it. 
all too few of them have sleep. Um, because the way that we work as a network, time zones tend to not mean much. And I could be in any given country on any given day uh, answering conference calls and doing creative reviews at any given day, time of the day. Faking a conference call so I can get in at 10 a.m. because I, you know, only flew in at 10 p.m. the night before. And the rest of the day is mainly yes, knowing other people's ideas and reviewing case study videos. So a typical day for me is pretty hard to outline. So Genius Deals is a nomadic consultancy. So the last time I had a physical home base was March of 2013. We tried to work 20 hours a week and spend the rest of the time exploring and cultivating personal projects and things we're interested in. We always say you can't invent without inventory. And so we're constantly gathering inventory of experiences and, you know, getting to explore and be nosy or be curious about other people's cultures. Uh, so that then when we do have those intense bursts of work, those one week sprints, um, we are ready and available to do so. Hmm, so loads of travel seems to be a theme, but what's the worst part of their job? Starting with Ogilvy India's Sanal Dubral. I feel that the worst part of the job is when you are kind of exploring ideas, right? And uh, you hit a wall, you know, or ideas don't come in time or the ideas that you're getting are not just good enough, you know. So uh, this exploration of ideas, right, and hitting a wall is actually the worst part of the job. But why I'm saying there's the best part of the job also is because that's what one lives for in advertising. So I guess uh, there's a, that, that's, the, that's the duality that I like. So worst part also and the best part of the job also is possibly the same. The worst part? Timesheets. Timesheets. I fucking hate timesheets. Yeah, the worst part of it was all of the travel. I mean, there were times when I was traveling, you know, four, five, six weeks at a time and I'd just be sort of on the road, you know, particularly, um, you know, once you head to Europe or something, it doesn't make sense to fly back to New York and then fly back to Europe two days later. So you would, you know, I would sort of stay there and, and just sort of work in the various offices. And, you know, sometimes that was tough because, uh, you know, a week's travel is fun and, you know, enjoyable, but to be away from your family and friends for that long and to be on your own, to be honest, in a foreign city, you know, I, I would find myself alone in Madrid not knowing anyone and, uh, you know, it can't get could get a bit boring. So uh, I, over the last year, I went back to school and started learning photography and uh, I would do on wow. online classes and... I learnt uh, kind of my way around a camera like I hadn't before. And so when I would find myself sort of in uh, Veve in Switzerland for the weekend or something, I would just go out and spend the days photographing, which was fantastic. So best and worst. I think email is the worst part of the job. I mean, the I, I think that I, I'm very much a phone person. I like having live conversations. I was at South by Southwest a number of years ago and somebody very smart was on stage and said that email is the only to-do list in the world where anybody feels like they can add something to it at any given time. The worst part of my job, I guess, as a co-founder of a company, you know, you take on financial risk and cash flow, we hire people. There's not a whole lot of support system in place if clients don't pay you. You know, taking clients to court is not something that anyone wants to do, but Beyond that, it's really not, you know, financially worth its while 
to do that. Now, one day, you guys will be asking these people for a job. So I asked them, what do they look for in a creative? Starting with Inocean's Jeremy Cragen. I kind of still follow the, the, the kind of rules I had at, at, at DDB, which was like, do I want to spend some time with this person? Especially if I'm going to be flying halfway across the, the world and saying, okay, away from my family, I've got to go out for dinner with this person. I've got to, you know, be able to have honest conversations with them and, and feel that also I can trust them. So th- those those kind of like rules still still apply. A certain sense of humility, you know, certain amount of humility in a person because uh, I feel that uh, arrogance is one thing that uh, that's a killer in this uh, profession. One other really important thing is whether you like people, whether you are curious about life, whether you are curious about people. So I would say curiosity, curiosity, uh, curiosity about life, about people and whether you're a people's person, do you like people? Because... Uh, one thing that our job is not is not it's not for lone warriors you know advertising is not for lone warriors well i look for someone with a book full of ideas that i wish were mine then as a bonus ideally they should have no social life or family commitments so they'll work like a dog and never ask for a raise i've tried to hire outside of the traditional um, kind of schools for advertising. And what I'm really looking for is, uh, you know, I've said it a lot in my career, but I have this kind of view that passion trumps talent. I think obviously talent is the reason that, you know, a lot of us are in this industry. You know, talent you can enhance, but a passion you can't give someone. Now, so you can get your book or portfolio together, here's the sort of work they'll be looking for starting with Chael's Malcolm Poynton. Well, I obsess over what creative ways we can come up with to connect brands with consumers. And sometimes that might be a film, sometimes it might be an app, sometimes it could be a utility, a service, or a physical space and experience. And it's hard to kind of pigeonhole, you know, what we need more or less of in the future because we need all of these things. I think the thing for me is the, the best thing and the most brilliant thing is the element of surprise. I mean, that's that's what really makes the big difference is surprise me. You know, there's some agencies, I'm not going to mention them because they're not mine, but I love them. Um, but there are some agencies out there that I really admire because they do take untraditional people and, and support and surround them and allow them to um, to flourish. I mean, two of my creative directors coming up, one, one had been a cab driver and one had been a bartender. And and a creative director met them and said, you know what, the way that you talk, the way you look at life, your humor, you know, your observations, I think you would really enjoy advertising. I think we're at a moment where we need more comedy, to be honest. It's gotten to the point where it's like not everything in the world has to save the world. Because in, in addition to all the amazing things that advertising can do, it can also make you laugh. And it can also make you feel something. And I think that we we desperately need more of that. Be absolutely relevant to the people. So any piece of work that you're doing, it might be a proactive piece of work. It might be a it might be a brief that has come from the client. It might be a brief that you have generated for the brand because you love the brand so much. But every time, remember that that piece of work is not meant for you, or for the client, or for the jury. That piece of work will always, always be meant for the target audience that you're speaking to. Most of these people have won multiple awards over their career. 
But what work are they most proud of? Uh, early in the in the 90s in Ogilvy, we were an integral part of the change that kind of swept Indian advertising and changed it from being predominantly Western and uh, English to becoming Indian and local celebrating our indianness so that was that's one thing that i'm really proud of there is an issue i have with our industry is that we tend to celebrate work one piece of creative at a time and i would say that the things that i'm most proud of are enduring ideas that have lasted over time uh that that have built something so the the, the proudest moments for me have been you know i have to say m&ms has been a huge part of my career only because you know, we started the entertainment idea and defining the characters by the colors and creating a comedic ensemble in 1996. And it seems so simple now, you know, that it's everywhere. But it was a moment in time where you kind of go, how did we think that big about something? And why didn't we negotiate the licensing so we owned it instead of the client? <laughs> Most proud of Probably the last Grand Prix I actually won with an idea of my own back in 1997. As a writer, I would say my favorite piece of work that I did was a, a film I did with Jonathan Glazer called Protection, which was the polo. And that, that was in 1996, can you believe that thing? No, seven, 1997. And then as a creative director, I would say there were two pieces. One was the integrated campaign for golf called Night Drive, which was, you know, a really terrible brief to, you know, just saying, I'll remind people that the, that the golf is good to drive. And then the other one that's probably a classic is the singing in the rain for the golf GTI. It, it's hard to compare anything to Fearless Girl when you realize the impact sure. that it's just beginning to have. You know, a six-year-old girl who goes to visit the statue and then who knows, might, might be inspired at that moment that she can do anything and then, you know... Uh, yeah. grows up to be uh, you know like so that's the kind of thing it's really hard to um to 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 compare it to anything else hmm, not bad but they're all human so i asked them what was the piece of work they've done that will haunt them until their dying days starting with bbdo's matt mcdonald Oh my God. All right. So I ended up at this small, tiny advertising agency that had four employees and then the founder. Uh, and I was half the creative department. And we just did car dealership ads. I mean, the amazing thing about this place is that they had absolutely zero regard for copyright law. And we would use the Star Wars theme song in our work. We would use, <laughs> like, we would needle drop Rolling Stones, like, satisfaction Ooh. on an ad about how you're going to be super satisfied when you get this new Oldsmobile. It was so much fun. But, I mean, the, the, the work was terrible. We kind of elevated the form of local car dealership ads in, in Peoria, mm -hmm. Illinois. But if anybody were to dig up those spots now, I would die of embarrassment. We did do a commercial for M&M's and we were doing one where one of the M&M's was being held by a toddler, like a baby and the toddler had eaten, was biting the M&M and was scooping the chocolate out of his head and um, you know the two of the red and yellow were looking on like oh my god, you know, don't go into the light don't go, don't look at the light, you know Unfortunately, it was when the second round of Silence of the Lambs came out where Ray Liotta's brains were getting eaten. And we got all this negative press about, you know, how could M&M's be associated with this piece of 
you know, content and how disgusting to, you know, think people's brains are chocolate. And I'm like, uh, we didn't see it coming. <laughs> I remember when I was younger and I was living in Perth, my art director and I decided that we would try and write a jingle for a, um, a shopping centre. And, I, you know, I'm not well, the world's most musical person and I can't sing or play an instrument, but uh, we just thought, OK, well, let, well, I wonder what it's like to write a jingle. And we did, and to be honest. The client bought it and it was just shitty and it, it haunts me to this day that I even did it and it, it's out there somewhere, I'm sure. We once, many years ago in New Zealand, did a, a film for a cattle drench called JF Cow and it was about a cattle drench that... Uh, was a bullet that you fire from a kind of gun into the gut of the cattle. <laughs> and it was shot just like the Zapruder footage on Super 8. And it had a, a, it didn't have a cavalcade of cars, it had a cavalcade of cattle. And it was hugely successful in the local market. The farmers thought it was a hoot and it really, really worked for Ivermec. Unfortunately, it didn't work for the CMO. When the American parent company saw it, he lost his job. Now, many of you will be just starting out in this industry. So I wanted to know, what was the one piece of advice they would give themselves when they were in your shoes? Starting with McCann's Rob Riley. To, to not follow the money or the titles. In a lot of ways, I, I, I ended up being pretty good at some things and then... Uh, Cut to you know, being 30, you know, two years old or 33 years old and realizing I had a big job, but I didn't really have a lot of great work. So I, uh, I, start, I, I started over. I went to drop my salary by about 60% and my title down to copywriter or senior copywriter and started over at Crispin. You know, yeah. changed my life, obviously. In the beginning, do not go after the money. Go into a job to learn. Go into a job when you go after great work, Money will follow. Um, try to write more of your your own story than trying to write what you think other people want you to. When I came in, I was one of the few women, you know, at my company. And so I tried to write what guys would like, you know, and what I thought that my bosses would find funny. I wish I'd known I had that power to not reflect society, but progress society, if you can say that. <laughs> Um, I think just to make friends with people outside of advertising. I think that sometimes we get stuck in these loops of inspiration from other advertising, but I love getting to work with so many people who are only dipping their hands into advertising. Needless to say, they've all done rather well. But what would they be doing if they weren't in advertising? Starting with Great Guns' Laura Gregory. I'd be producing games. Any game. Shoot 'em ups, anything. I mean, I just, I just think the gaming industry is really fascinating. Computer games are, you know, they're becoming so ex- extraordinary now. You know, the, 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 the finish and the work. It's there's going to be a time when we don't need, you know, actors and stunt people anymore. A blackjack player, yeah, and maybe a filmmaker or an actor, actor. I think I would do something with chairs. I mean, I've been, it's been well documented my obsession with chairs. Uh, so I, I, I like furniture. I don't know. I don't know if I would design furniture or I would sell furniture, but I, I, I like that and I like uh, soccer. So those are two angles of maybe I'd make chairs for soccer games. I'd probably be in automotive sales, trying to make it as a novelist instead of in advertising, trying to make it as a novelist. I'd be sailing yachts 
So I, I made a decision many years ago and uh, I was part of the New Zealand yachting team and I, I had to make a choice. Was I going to go to Perth and earn $60 a week? Actually, it wasn't. It was $30 a week. Or was I going to continue the summer job I had in an advertising agency? And it's pretty clear which, which path I chose. I have a, um, a very definite passion uh, for interior design and architecture and it's something that I've loved doing. And I think, to me, if I wasn't working in advertising I'd definitely be pursuing that and and hopefully there's even time to do it you know during my career okay so here's the bit that Bob and the rest of the Leah team will be most interested in it's the bit where I ask them why enter Leah hmm. there are loads of other award shows so what makes having a Leah on the shelf so special here's FCB's Susan Cradle I'm always impressed with the juries that are put together, and I think that the awards that you win, they, they have more value if you know the passion and the love that the jury has. So what I find is that the conversations actually, they have been so honest, you know, and people really, really thinking about the work and the power of the work and what the work did. And I think that, you know, when you know that your work has been a part of meaningful conversations, you can feel really good about that. I think the jury is really good at Leah. It's a small jury and uh, jury members are all, you know, really top-notch juries. The other part that I really like about Leah is uh, the way Leah kind of gives back to the industry through its liaison program. You know, these young creatives who are invited from across the world, uh, fully paid for by Leah. For them, it's such a fantastic experience to be there for seven days, to be part of the judging process, to be given uh, talks by, you know, many of those uh, celebrated judges that are present there. And uh, I think it's like kind of once-in-a-lifetime experience. In a, and I'm sure from their point of view, such an inspiring experience. I feel it's a little punk rock, this show, but, you know, I think it's always trying to do something a little different. It's got probably the, one of the cooler trophies out there, you know, that does matter. You know, I think anything, badging, you haven't. They've, they've been on the forefront of creating some of these new things or new categories or new ways, you know, having the students in for the final round I remember doing a few years ago, I was like, wow, this is a good idea, you know, like, so yeah. there's something about it that it feels a little, you know, punk rock to me, and I, I think that's a cool thing. You know, I think that it's a really great uh, jury. The people that they pull together every year are, you know, amongst the most respected out there, so I think being recognized by that jury means that it's... You know, you've definitely done something great. Um, and it's also a really attractive trophy. Uh, and, yeah. and, and typically one of the heaviest. Like, you could pick up one of those things, and if you were ever in need of, like, sort of, like, defending your life, that's the first one I would go for. I think Leah has one of the best uh, juries of any award show in the world. You know, the jury presidents are always, like, um, you know, heads of networks, etc., and big uh, big names and, and people I've admired in the industry. And, you know, I think I've seen it many times where a, a win at LIA, you know, can launch a career, can give you a pay rise, can get you a, a new job, etc. So, you know, it's fantastic recognition for the work, but it also, um, because I think it is such a, you know, it's a tough one to win. Um, I think that kind of bodes well for the winners. I tell you, I honestly believe it's the hardest award to win. Anybody who sat in on the, you know, from the liaison uh, groups have, have sat in on the juries will, will suddenly realise, and that's the reason why we did it, is to realise the interrogation that a piece of work 
goes through. And I think there's work that wins gold in Cannes, that wins bronze at Lear. Now, one of the coolest parts of the Liaisons programme is that young creatives get to actually sit in on the judging. It's an idea we had years ago, which seemed crazy at the time, but judging by the feedback, it's one of the most valuable learning experiences in the industry. These are a few of the judging tips and insights from those that have been there and judged that. The way that I try to do it is that I say, let's, let's first look at the work and say, does it deserve a medal? And then once you curate all of that, then I say, okay, of this work, which ones deserve to go to the next level? And then you take those up to silver. And then you look at the silver that you've curated and say, okay, which ones stand out in this silver world and you think should be lifted up to a gold? And, and when you do it that way, First of all, I think it is much more respectful of the work, but it also becomes clearer. Obviously, it has to be a great idea, but relevance is something that should drive it right from its bronze stage right up to its Grand Prix stage. It has to be painstakingly, beautifully executed. But what starts to make the difference is that even in terms of execution, is there any fresh ground that has been broken? That's what kind of starts to push it towards silver. And when it comes to gold, you really, really envy the team that would have done it. In a way, you know, it brings you to the ground. Not just, I wish I'd done it, but how the hell did they do it? And out of those few goals, you know, what makes a Grand Prix is uh, something that redefines that category. It breaks a new path in that category. So I think there's obvious kind of rational criteria around whether things are relevant, whether they are fresh, but there is something that goes beyond all of those and that is instinct and gut. How does it make you feel? Um, I personally am very interested in efficacy and while I don't think it's always a defining um, characteristic in creative award shows, it certainly is important to our clients and that would be something that I'm also looking for. And now we get to the nitty gritty. A few personal questions that some of them answered and some of them dodged. Here's the first one. What would you say to one of your family members if they wanted to get into advertising? Please do. Say it's, it's a fantastic business. I would absolutely say yes. I think, uh, you know, there's definitely, you know, the, the industry from a financial point of view is having a tough time and, that, you know, that's fine. Uh, but I think from a creative point of view, it's such a fantastic industry to be in. I would tell anyone, you know, whether they were related to me or not, that yes, come and work in advertising because it's better than it's ever been. My niece is an artist um, and a poet and a photographer, and I've absolutely told her that I think that this industry might be something she should look into. Yeah. My niece does want to. She's incredibly talented, but um, my daughter didn't want to go into this. How many people have you fired? Mm-hmm. I'd say 10 to 20. Oh, 20 to 50. I even fired Rachel on a movie. <laughs> I've definitely fired more than 15 people in my career. It, it was more to do with the financial realities. I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe 10 people or something like that. More than I've wanted to. <laughs> Pass. Okay. Have you ever had to step on anyone to get to where you are today? No. No, you never have to do that. No. Never. Yes. I mean, I was a secretary to some of the people that ended up working for me. <laughs> so. I do remember um, working with this art director who just turned out to be an awful person. And uh, I actually resigned and kind of left her um, 
So I, I didn't really step on her. I stepped over her. <laughs> step on anyone? Man, I'm, I'm too lazy to even stand up. I'm under six foot, so no. Hell no. How often do you actually conceive or write an idea these days? I don't know if I conceive or write, but fix <laughs> or help or tweak or, you know, rewrite. I probably do it every day, but I don't share much of it with anybody. <laughs> the more senior you get in the job, the further you get away from the work, the sort of less connected you are. So every once in a while, you really do have to pick up the pen. I tend not to compete with the creative people who are working for me in a very deliberate way. Uh, once a year. If I have an idea, I'll give it to somebody and say, you can do this what you like. What's the most expensive thing you own? My favorite thing is a swan chair. You know, Arnie Jacobson ah, swan chair, the original, with only the one piece of aluminum, not two, not two-piece base. Ooh, oh God. A sports car that I bought when I turned 50 because I'd never bought like a ridiculous adult toy. And, and I, don't, I don't love it. <laughs> Art. A Michael Smithers painting from New Zealand. My wine cellar. I don't know, 3,000 bottles of wine, some of which are 600, 700 pounds a bottle. Well, the most expensive thing I've ever paid for was probably my divorce lawyer's new Tesla. My wife got me a really expensive pair of shoes for my birthday. Probably a painting my husband gave me. Peter Housen. It's mm. an amazing uh, piece of sort of contemporary art by an artist called Retina. And, uh, you know, when we bought it, uh, it was, you know, probably... $25,000 and, you know, certainly one of the most expensive things I've ever bought. And uh, it's probably worth double that now. Hmm. How much do you earn? Enough. How's that for an answer? Enough. I'm not going to answer that one. In the region of 750000 plus bonuses, it's standard for a CCO. How much do I earn? Um, more than my wife. She's retired. I think that's going to be my first pass. Sorry. And finally, when are you going to retire? I don't know. Maybe I'm 32 now. Maybe like 50. Oh, I retired years ago. I just haven't told the network yet. Given that we're having another baby now, I probably need another 20 years of working. So I don't plan on retiring for a very long time. Be ready to retire at 58. I don't necessarily have to do it, but I want to be able to be financially ready if I want to retire that I can and, I, and go and focus on, you know, maybe uh, flipping houses or something like that. I don't have any plans to retire. I might start again and learn from the creative liaisons. I don't know. If I won the lottery, I don't know. I think I could retire or something. It'd be pretty tempting. I think when I feel like I... I'm not adding value. If I feel like I, I've, I've lost the plot or if the industry really has moved to a place that I don't quite understand, you know, I'll walk away. Well, when do I plan to retire? Uh, they, they'll have to really, really, they have to really, really fight for it because I'm not going to retire very soon. Okay, so that's it. If you found it enlightening, fun, useful, drop me a line at ralph at eardrum.com. And if I hear from enough of you, I'll make some more. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Laura Gregory, Jeremy Cragen, Malcolm Poynton, Matt Eastwood, Matt McDonald, Rob Riley, Rosie Jacob, Sanal Dubral, and yeah, even the mystery person who shall remain nameless. Thanks again to Leah, and congratulations on surviving 10 years in Vegas. Wow, you guys deserve an award. <laughs>